This morning we are continuing our look at the Old Testament and how the story of the Old Testament prepares us to understand in greater ways the story of Christ. And as we've been walking through Genesis, this morning we're going to take a leap a little bit, a bit of a jump in the story of Genesis, moving all the way to chapter 22. And in Genesis 22, we find a somewhat shocking command from God, a command that is meant to test a new character in this unfolding story that God is writing before us, a guy named Abraham. We first encounter Abraham when he is called Abram back in Genesis 11, and we encounter him in uh, another lineage as we see that Abram is in the lineage of Noah following uh, his son Shem. And God chooses from the descendants of Shem and the descendants of Noah, this guy Abram, to continue his work of blessing upon the earth. The work of redemption that we first begin to see the, the seed of in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God calls Abraham from among the descendants of Noah and he sets him apart and he makes a new covenant with this guy named Abraham, a new promise to him, one through which all the nations of the world would be blessed. We see that in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, but it's not just your blessing. It's not just reserved for you, because the blessing that I'm going to pour out upon you, I'm going to increase to impact the entirety of the world. Through your blessing, I will then bless the entirety of the world. Here's a problem, though. God's promising that he's going to bless the world through the line of Abraham, but Abraham doesn't have any kids. So how is God going to bless the nations through the descendants of Abraham when Abraham has no descendants? And additionally, another problem, Abraham and Sarah are really old. And for those of you science geeks out there, Old is a problem to having kids, and that's all we'll say about that. As we follow the story moving forward, we see that Abraham and Sarah try to solve this problem themselves. And here's just an aside for everyone in the room. Anytime you and I begin to take matters into our own hands to try to fix what's really God's problem to fix, isn't it funny how often we make matters worse? Careful there. Learn from the example here. Since Sarah cannot bear Abraham any children, she gives her Egyptian servant Hagar to him in order for her to bear him a son. And she does. A guy named Ishmael. But God makes it very clear that this son is not the son of promise. Is not the son that God had in mind. This was not God's plan. He made the promise. And he would be the one to fulfill the promise, even if miraculous intervention was necessary. When Abraham and Sarah had gotten even older, we see in Genesis 17 that God himself does intervene in their life and brings about this son of promise that he had spoken over Abraham. So notice how the story is moving forward here in the book of Genesis. Once again, a son of promise, divinely given to continue the story of redemption, 
to continue to, to bring about the hope that the curse that had been brought up on the earth through the sin of Adam could be undone. And while many laughed at this prospect that a woman as old as Sarah could have a baby, including Sarah herself, God does make good on his promise, and they have a son named Isaac. And all this sets the stage for what takes place in Genesis 22. After Abraham sends his son away from Hagar, Ishmael, he has only one son left, one true son of promise whom he deeply loves. This son that is going to to carry forth the covenant that was made to Abraham by God. But after all that waiting and after all the miraculous intervention that took place in order for Abraham to have this son, God asks something pretty remarkable of Abraham. And on the face of it, pretty troubling. Let's read the story together. Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt sacrifice on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. And if you've been reading the story of Genesis, I think your reaction to this, these first two verses should be this. What? What did God ask Abraham to do? There's so many questions that come to mind, so many challenges, honestly, to the character and the story of God. Remember, we're learning in the story, in the book of Genesis, who this God is. And it seems like this is very contrary to the the God that has been presenting himself to us. Let's consider just two challenges to the character and story of God that come forward by these two verses alone. Firstly, there is a challenge to God's character. It's a challenge to God's character when he asks something like this. This isn't a God that we know. This isn't a God that's been unfolding himself in the first 20 chapters of Genesis, and certainly not the God who continues to unveil himself through the rest of the Old Testament and the New. This is the same God who condemned the actions of Cain, the son of Adam, when he killed his brother Abel. He even cursed Cain in Genesis 4, 11 and 12. The same God tells Noah in Genesis 9, 6, that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed because God made man in his own image. And there's something significant that God hates about men killing men, women killing women, image bearers killing image bearers. Later, the same God will offer a commandment to the entirety of his people that you shall not kill. You shall not. There will be consequences if you do. And moreover, Deuteronomy 12, 29-31 shows that God condemns human sacrifice. He calls it abominable. It makes him sick to his stomach when people offer sacrifices of sons and daughters to him. So that's interesting. The second challenge is to the promise of God, not just the character of God, the promise of God. Isaac represents the seed of Genesis 3.15 and the continuation of the promise that God has given to both Noah and Abraham. If Isaac is sacrificed 
How will God's promise to bless all the nations through Abraham actually happen? How will his promise to undo the effects of sin, to lift the curse upon humanity by the seed of woman, how will any of the promises of God come through if Abraham has no kids? Because if Isaac dies, the same problems exist before he was born. Abraham and Sarah are still really old. And it's going to recount or require another miraculous intervention for them to have another son. So why would God go through all of that to secure his promise and unfold once again the covenant that he's making with mankind? Why would he go through all that trouble and then in a moment remove the guarantee of his promise? All these questions just rush into our head as the story unfolds in Genesis. But what's interesting is that Abraham does not question. We question the character of God and the promises of God. So we're learning about who this God is, but Abraham does not. There's something about the character of God and the promises of God that leads him to walk forward in obedience. He gets up according to verse 3. He saddles his donkey he takes his son and a couple of servants to Moriah on a three days journey. I want you to think about that. Abraham is taking his son on a three day journey. And the whole time he's thinking about what's coming at the end of that journey. Don't you know he's just wrestling with the Lord, asking the Lord, God, did I hear you wrong? Is there something else that you're trying to to show me here? Are you going to change your commands? But he continued forward because he did trust in the character of God and he did trust in the promises of God. And when they arrive, Abraham tells his servants something pretty incredible in verse five. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. Did you catch what Abraham says there? Both of us are going to go over there and both of us are going to come back. Now, Abraham knew what he was going over there to do. He knew that he was going over there to offer his son as a sacrifice. And yet he had the confidence because of the God he knew that was unveiling himself to Abraham and to us and the promises of God that somehow, some way, regardless of what happened up on that mountain, he and Isaac were coming down off of it. In fact, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 18 says, Abraham believed so much and the promise and power of God that he thought it was possible that even if Isaac died, God would raise him from the dead. Because God had made him a promise. And God's faithful to his promises. And his promises are tied up in Isaac. Somehow, some way, this son is going to come forward. It's no lie to cover his tracks in front of a servant. It's a declaration of faith that we see in the life of Abraham. Isaac, though, doesn't know the whole story. He sees all the materials for sacrifice and he asks in verse seven, behold, there's the fire, there's the wood, dad, but where is the lamb? Where's the lamb that we're gonna offer in this sacrifice? And Abraham answers his son, God will provide. He's gonna provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. The tension builds. Abraham builds the altar. 
Verse nine, he bounds his son Isaac. He places him upon the wood. He takes hold of the knife. And just as he's about to raise that knife and take the son, or take the life of the son that he loves, an angel of the Lord cries out to him and says, Abraham, stop. Stop. Everybody in the room and everybody who reads the story collectively breathes a sigh of relief. God had seen Abraham's remarkable faith and he had provided another sacrifice. Abraham had passed this test and God was going to prove himself faithful. You see, this God was different than other pagan gods. And this time it may not have been that shocking for a God to demand the sacrifice of a child. Abraham might have gone forward thinking that this God was just like every other God, wanting the, the best that we have to offer, the most precious thing in our life. But this God was different. This God would not require the sacrifice of his son. In fact, he provided a substitute to satisfy the requirement that he had given to Abraham, a ram. A ram was given so that Isaac could live, so that the promise could live, so that the blessing could live. The line to Christ did not end at Moriah. Blessing was still available. And just like Abraham promised, he and Isaac walked down that mountain. It's a pretty incredible story, isn't it? Dramatic, tense, a true story that's meant to encourage God's people. And let's consider for a moment together how this story would have encouraged God's people in the time that it was being given. Likely when they're walking around in the wilderness on the other side of the, the miraculous deliverance from Egypt, waiting to enter into the land of promise, Moses is, is giving these stories about God's activity among his people to them to encourage them and lead them to greater faithfulness. So, so how would this story, this Genesis 22 story, have encouraged the people of God then? Well, firstly, it was a call to trust God. There may be moments in the story where from our perspective, we begin to call into question God's character. How could he do that? How could he ask that of Abraham? There may be moments in the story where the promise is threatened, what about God's promise? Is he going to be able to prove himself faithful when the whole world is coming against him? Is he going to be strong enough to carry forward the blessing that he has spoken over us? And this is one more reminder in a sea of reminders unfolding in the Old Testament that God's character is true. While you may not see what he's trying to do in that moment. He is never changing. He is always good. And he will always bring about his promises. There's threat after threat in the Old Testament going against this line, this, this continuation of the seed from Genesis 3.15 all the way to Christ. And every time there's a threat, God sows himself more powerful. You can trust in his character. You can rest in his covenant because what God promises, 
he makes good on. Trust in him. Trust in him the way that Abraham did. Abraham didn't waver. He knew the promise of God. He knew the character of God. And he acted in obedience even when it didn't make sense. And God showed himself faithful. You can trust God. Secondly, this story served as a reminder of where true blessing comes from. An acknowledgement that ultimately every blessing that we have is from God. The things that we love the most are ultimately meant to lead us to a greater love for God who gives us every good thing. Every good thing you have, every good thing I have, every good thing that Abraham has was from the Lord. And this was especially true of Isaac. It made no sense, made no sense that he and Sarah had a son. And yet, even when naturally it was impossible, God did something supernatural and gave them what they longed for, a son. God had miraculously given Isaac to them. And now the question that is brought forward to us is what could we withhold that we would not have if not for God? Surely everything that's been given to us, we should offer in return to God. Now, it's important to recognize that this was an extreme request from God, an extreme command of God to prove a point. He's not going to ask anybody in this room to kill their son or kill their daughter on his behalf as a sacrifice. That still is an abominable thing to him. But it was all to prove a point that he was not like the other gods. He was different. And while they, in the conception of man, may have required this of them, this God was going to be different. Because even if Abraham had offered his son the best thing that he had to offer, it would not be enough to cover the gap between he and God. Even if it was a blood sacrifice, Even if Isaac had died on that altar that day, it still would not have been enough in order to satisfy the judgment and the wrath of God. Any sacrifice that God takes is an act of mercy anyway. And so God allows mercifully for a ram so that Abraham can continue to enjoy the blessing that God has given him in Isaac. But he was willing. He was willing. That's a challenge for us as we read this text. As the Old Testament comes before us, the people of God were reading this text to say, what is it that I have been given by God that I would not be willing to give? And does that mean that I love this thing more than I love God? What a challenge. And finally, not only was this a call to trust God and a a call to remember the true source of blessing, it was an invitation to worship. What we see in Genesis 22 is an invitation to worship God because this is not the only time in the history of God's interaction with his people that he has offered a substitute to save his people. You know The people of God, as they're reading this story in Genesis 22 and seeing a a ram, a substitute given to save the life of Isaac, they're thinking Passover. Innocent lamb whose blood covered us so that we could be free from the judgment of God. They're thinking sacrificial system that, that God had just given Moses to speak over them about how their sins were going to be atoned for. 
that their relationship with God could continue, that they could not on their own offer enough to cover. And so God mercifully will receive the life of a pure and spotless lamb, a pure and spotless animal to withhold his judgment over them and continue their relationship together. It's a reminder of God's loving kindness that although he could ask the greatest from us, he doesn't. Because ultimately, it wouldn't cover the sin anyway. These are just a few encouragements that could have been taken from the story. I'm sure there are more. But I hope that you see, even as we see how encouraging this story was to God's people then, how much more encouraging it is to us on this side of Christ. Because Genesis 22, while it shows us incredible things about the character and promise of God early on in his interaction with mankind, it also begins to prepare us for the greater work of Christ that we will see unfold over the next thousand years, hundreds of pages before us. Let's think about for a moment how these encouragements are sowing the seed for the greater encouragement that we have found in Christ. While it was true that this story called people to trust and the promises of God, certainly on the other side of Christ, as this story has unfolded and come to completion, we know now that we have even a greater cause to trust and the promises of God because in Christ, we have seen the complete fulfillment of God's promises. Isaac was the fulfillment of a promise, yes. It was the continuation of a promise, but he was not the end of the promise. What started in Genesis has been carried through the entirety of the Bible and his character and his promises are always, always, always upheld. We can trust in God because of the work that he has done for us in Christ. We can rest in his promises because every promise has been fulfilled in Jesus. Isaac was the door to continue the promise moving forward. Jesus is the end. And to see, to see how, how many more times there are, are calls to question the character of God, how many more times the promises of God are threatened by attacks that come against it. And to see how over and over and over again, just like in Genesis 22, his character stands firm and his promises are faithfully fulfilled is a reminder that wherever we are, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, we can trust God. It may not make sense right now. From our perspective, we may not have a Bible to turn back on and see the story over and over again, giving us clarity and the, with the help of the Holy Spirit to understand what God was trying to do in that moment. But even when we don't understand, there is more than enough evidence to cause us to trust in Him, to rely upon Him, to know that He has not changed, that He is the same God yesterday, today, and forever, and His promises will come to pass. And there's no greater evidence of that than the cross of Christ. Has there ever been a, a greater display of the character of God 
and the promises of God together in the cross. Friends, we've never seen the character of God unfold before us like the cross of Jesus. His holiness, his righteousness, his justice, perfectly displayed as he pours out his judgment and wrath upon God, on Christ. And at the very same time, his mercy, his grace, his loving kindness, knowing that that should have been us. The greatest revelation of God before us in Christ, his character on full display. And although it may have not made sense at the time to those disciples sitting around, God's promises were being fulfilled. His character on display, his promises kept. The curse being undone right before their eyes. And the promise of salvation awaiting them. We have a greater cause to trust in the promises of God. Secondly, we have been given an even greater blessing. It's a reminder of where all blessing comes from, Genesis 22. But it points us to the greatest blessing that we could have ever received from God in Christ. Hear me. We have been given a greater son of promise who is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham. He is not just the key to advancing the promise through history as Isaac was. He is the fulfillment of the promise. In Christ, we have every blessing of God unfolded before us. In Christ, the blessing that we have been longing for on the other side of the curse is finally realized. When we recognize that apart from Christ, we are in condemnation. When we recognize that apart from Christ, we are living under a curse, not just for this life, but a curse that will extend for all of eternity and that without the help of God, we would have no hope from coming out from underneath that curse when every part of our being is longing for blessing, when every part of our being is longing for the curse to be lifted and the hopelessness to know that there's nothing we can do about it, suddenly the light of the Bible shines forth and the answer to every deep longing of our heart is found in Christ. Whatever blessing that you're looking for, whatever removal of curse that you're looking for, it is only found in Jesus. Because through him, we are restored. Through him, we are reconnected to God. Only through him, because only he could undo the curse. Finally, not only do we have a greater sense to trust God and see the greater blessing of God, we have seen a greater substitutionary sacrifice. We have seen a greater substitute. And I think perhaps this is the greatest takeaway from this story for us today. That in Christ, we have seen a greater substitute. I want you to think about this. God some thousands of years before the work of Christ, was already preparing us in the story of Abraham and Isaac for the work of Christ by introducing us to the idea of a substitute. The idea that it was possible that God could offer a substitute to satisfy what he demanded from us. 
because we know that whatever it is that we could give would not be enough. Would not be enough to satisfy all that God had against us. He's already priming the pump for what he would do in Jesus. What we could not do, God would do. What we could not pay, God would pay. He sacrifices for us. I want you to think about this. What was too high a price for us to pay, God paid. This is a God who does not ask us to give our children. He's a God who gives us his son. And this son is worthy. He's worthy. He's a better ram. Because whatever sacrifice was offered that day did not cover the the sin of the entirety of Abraham's life. It did not continue or did not cover the sin of Isaac's life. It was a temporary offering that offered temporary blessing. But the substitute that we have in Christ offers permanent blessing. It's a permanent covering for our sin. And he alone is worthy. He alone could sit before a holy and righteous God and take on the sin of all the people who would call upon his name to be saved. He alone could do that for us. A greater substitute. Friends, this is no ram. It's a son. He is the son of promise who the father has not withheld. In the gospel, the father willingly gives his one and only son whom he loves so that all humanity could be spared from the wrath of God who must strike the guilty because of their sin. So that what is demanded of God from us could be satisfied. The price is too high. Jesus is the greater substitutionary sacrifice whom God has provided to lead us into his promised blessing. Foreseen in Genesis 22, fulfilled in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is no small truth. This is no small truth. The idea of a substitute is key to our faith. Here's the doctrine Penal substitutionary atonement. Turn to your neighbor. Say penal substitutionary atonement. You can use it at garden parties. Right? This idea that a worthy substitute could take our place and God would consider their sacrifice worthy to cover our own. That idea is central, that there would be someone who would be an acceptable sacrifice to take all of our places that could satisfy the wrath of God in that moment and for all of time, that there would be a lamb who was a a worthy substitute for a man. That's key to every piece of our faith. It is essential to us being able to receive the grace and mercy of God. His character had to be satisfied. His holiness, his wrath, all of these things had to be satisfied. And if it were not for Christ, that responsibility would still weigh on us. 
but because God provided a lamb, because God provided a substitute, we who were condemned can now walk in freedom. Praise be to God. Jesus is the greater substitutionary sacrifice whom God has provided to lead us in to his promised blessing. He was condemned so you could be free. He died so that you could live. Just like Isaac. How can we respond today to this incredible story and the way that it prepares us for Christ? Well, I think our first response should be the response, at least one of the responses that was desired among God's people when they first heard it, and that's a response to worship. This story is an invitation to worship. When we recognize what God has done, we recognize how he and his goodness has worked the entirety of history to make a way for our salvation. When he has worked the entirety of history to make a way for the curse to be lifted. And now we are the beneficiaries of that work. How could we not respond in worship? How could we not give thanks and praise to this God who rescued us when there was no hope of rescue otherwise? When we see ourselves upon the altar and we know that knife was meant for us. And yet God did not put that knife to us, but his own son. How could we not respond in worship? Recognizing the love and kindness that he has shown us in Jesus. Our first response has to be to worship. A second response has to do with our understanding of blessing, which I think is tied to worship. It's a reminder that our greatest blessing that we have been given is in Christ. And when God has given us so much in Jesus, how could we withhold anything that he has blessed us with beyond that to him? When we consider the many things that God has bestowed upon us, that he has blessed us with financially, in our family, in our person, at our job, whatever it is that God has blessed us with, whatever he has authored in our life as a blessing, he should be able to ask for any of it in a way that, of course, is in accordance with his character and his promises. He's not going to ask you to sacrifice your children. He's not that kind of God. But is there anything that's too great for you to offer him in response to the way that he has offered his son to you? This is a reminder this morning that the response to incredible blessing is incredible return, sacrifice. That an act of worship is to give as God has given to us. That we won't withhold anything from God when he asks of it, just like Abraham. Finally, the third response is perhaps a new one for some of you in this room. And it's a response to belief. Repentance and belief, a response of salvation. Maybe some of you in this room have never embraced the substitute. 
Maybe some of you in this room are still on the hook for the judgment that is coming upon you. Maybe some of you, if you die today, you wouldn't know what would happen if you stood before a holy and righteous God. And I want you to hear me this morning say that God has provided Jesus. And the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. Saved from what? The knife. The death. The permanent eternal death that awaits if not for the work of Jesus. That's available to you today. In just a minute, we'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front. And we'd love to speak with you more about what God has provided for you in Christ. What a way to honor the Lord by taking advantage of what he's already provided for you in Jesus. For the rest of us, let's worship. If we've already come under that work of Christ, let's rejoice because we were able to come down the mountain. Because God made a way when there was no other way. Wherever you are, would you bow your head? Spend some time before the Lord. Father, thank you for reminding us today that Jesus is the true and better substitute. That he will lead us into your eternal land of promise. Thank you for what you've provided for us in Christ. God, when we could not save ourselves, when the best that we had was not enough to cover our sin, you offered the best that you had because it was. And Father, we sit today in awe of that kind of love and that kind of mercy, that kind of loving kindness. Father, is anybody in this room who has not been covered, we're praying your Holy Spirit would begin convicting even now and lead them to a place of repentance and belief so they can live the life that Jesus has provided for them instead of living in the death that they've earned. And for the rest of us, may we consider that you have laid on him the iniquity of us all and that because you paid it all, we can now live in freedom and have the hope of eternity. Thank you for the beauty of the gospel and the work that you have done throughout the Old Testament to help us understand it more. God, we love you and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. You stand and respond as the Lord leads.